chapter two of campaigning with grant by horace porter this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two a higher grade created for grant grant's first meeting with lincoln in command of all the armies interview with stanton grant in a communicative mood at general meade's headquarters grant's narrow escape from capture grant's enormous responsibility grant's personal staff when i reached washington i went at once to headquarters and endeavored to see the commander-in-chief for the purpose of presenting general grant's letter but found after two or three attempts that it would be impossible to secure an interview i therefore gave the letter to colonel kelton his adjutant-general who placed it in general halleck's hands not only was there no action taken in regard to the request which the letter contained but its receipt was not even acknowledged this circumstance with others of its kind made it plain that general grant would never be free to make his selection of officers and organize his forces as he desired until he should be made general-in-chief elihu b washburn the member of congress from the galena district in illinois general grant's old home soon introduced a bill creating the grade of lieutenant-general and it was passed by both houses of congress with the implied understanding that general grant was to fill the position the highest grade in the army theretofore created during the war had been that of major-general the act became a law on february twenty sixth eighteen sixty four and the nomination of general grant was sent to the senate by mr lincoln on the first of march and confirmed on the second on the third the general was ordered to washington i had set to work upon my duties in the ordnance bureau and in the meantime had received several very kind messages from the general regarding the chances of my returning to the field on the evening of march eighth the president and mrs lincoln gave a public reception at the white house which i attended the president stood in the usual reception room known as the blue room with several cabinet officers near him and shook hands cordially with everybody as the vast procession of men and women passed in front of him he was in evening dress and wore a turned-down collar a size too large the necktie was rather broad and awkwardly tied he was more of a hercules than an adonis his height of six feet four inches enabled him to look over the heads of most of his visitors his form was ungainly and the movements of his long angular arms and legs bordered at times upon the grotesque his eyes were gray and disproportionately small his face wore a general expression of sadness the deep lines indicating the sense of responsibility which weighed upon him but at times his features lighted up with a broad smile and there was a merry twinkle in his eyes as he greeted an old acquaintance and exchanged a few words with him in a tone of familiarity he had sprung from the common people to become one of the most uncommon of men mrs lincoln occupied a position on his right for a time she stood on a line with him and took part in the reception but afterward stepped back and conversed with some of the wives of the cabinet officers and other personal acquaintances who were in the room at about half-past nine o'clock a sudden commotion near the entrance to the room attracted general attention and upon looking in that direction i was surprised to see general grant walking along modestly with the rest of the crowd toward mr lincoln he had arrived from the west that evening and had come to the white house to pay his respects to the president he had been in washington but once before when he visited it for a day soon after he had left west point 
although these two historical characters had never met before mr lincoln recognized the general at once from the pictures he had seen of him with a face radiant with delight he advanced rapidly two or three steps toward his distinguished visitor and cried out why here is general grant well this is a great pleasure i assure you at the same time seizing him by the hand and shaking it for several minutes with a vigor which showed the extreme cordiality of the welcome the scene now presented was deeply impressive standing face to face for the first time were the two illustrious men whose names will always be inseparably associated in connection with the war of the rebellion grant's right hand grasped the lapel of his coat his head was bent slightly forward and his eyes upturned toward lincoln's face the president who was eight inches taller looked down with beaming countenance upon his guest although their appearance their training and their characteristics were in striking contrast yet the two men had many traits in common and there were numerous points of resemblance in their remarkable careers each was of humble origin and had been compelled to learn the first lessons of life in the severe school of adversity each had risen from the people possessed an abiding confidence in them and always retained a deep hold upon their affections each might have said to those who were inclined to sneer at his plain origin what a marshal of france who had risen from the ranks to a dukedom said to the hereditary nobles who attempted to snub him in vienna i am an ancestor you are only descendants in a great crisis of their country's history both had entered the public service from the same state both were conspicuous for the possession of that uncommon of all virtues common sense both despised the arts of the demagogue and shrank from posing for effect or indulging in mock heroics even when their characteristics differed they only served to supplement each other and to add a still greater strength to the cause for which they strove with hearts too great for rivalry with souls untouched by jealousy they lived to teach the world that it is time to abandon the path of ambition when it becomes so narrow that two cannot walk it abreast the statesman and the soldier conversed for a few minutes and then the president presented his distinguished guest to mr seward the secretary of state was very demonstrative in his welcome and after exchanging a few words led the general to where mrs lincoln was standing and presented him to her mrs lincoln expressed much surprise and pleasure at the meeting and she and the general chatted together very pleasantly for some minutes the visitors had by this time become so curious to catch a sight of the general that their eagerness knew no bounds and they became altogether unmanageable mr seward's consummate knowledge of the wiles of diplomacy now came to the rescue and saved the situation he succeeded in struggling through the crowd with the general until they reached the large east room where the people could circulate more freely this however was only a temporary relief the people by this time had worked themselves up to a state of uncontrollable excitement the vast throng surged and swayed and crowded until alarm was felt for the safety of the ladies cries now arose of grant 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 then came cheer after cheer seward after some persuasion induced the general to stand upon a sofa thinking the visitors would be satisfied with a view of him and retire but as soon as they caught sight of him their shouts were renewed and a rush was made to shake his hand 
the president sent word that he and the secretary of war would await the general's return in one of the small drawing-rooms but it was fully an hour before he was able to make his way there and then only with the aid of several officers and ushers the story has been circulated that at the conference which then took place or at the interview the next day the president and the secretary of war urged general grant to make his campaign toward richmond by the overland route and finally persuaded him to do so although he had set forth the superior advantages of the water route there is not the slightest foundation for this rumor general grant some time after repeated to the members of his staff just what had taken place and no reference whatever was made to the choice of these two routes the next day march nine the general went to the white house by invitation of mr lincoln for the purpose of receiving his commission from the hands of the president upon his return to willard's hotel i called to pay my respects curiosity led me to look at the hotel register and the modesty of the entry upon the book in the general's handwriting made an impression upon me it read simply u s grant and son galena illinois his eldest boy fred accompanied him the act which created the grade of lieutenant-general authorized a personal staff to consist of a chief of staff with the rank of brigadier-general four aides-de-camp and two military secretaries each with the rank of lieutenant-colonel in our conversation the general referred to this circumstance and offered me one of the positions of aide-de-camp which i said i would accept very gladly the next day the tenth he paid a visit by rail to the headquarters of the army of the potomac near brandy station in virginia about seventy miles from washington he returned the day after and started the same night for nashville to meet sherman and turn over to him the command of the military division of the mississippi while in washington general grant had been so much an object of curiosity had been so continually surrounded by admiring crowds when he appeared in the streets and even in his hotel that it had become very irksome to him with his simplicity and total lack of personal vanity he did not seem able to understand why he should attract so much attention the president had given him a cordial invitation to dine that evening at the white house but he begged to be excused for the reason that he would lose a whole day which he could not afford at that critical period besides he added i have become very tired of this show business on the twelfth the official order was issued placing general grant in command of all the armies of the united states i soon learned that the secretary of war in spite of general grant's request to have me assigned to his staff wanted to insist upon my continuing my duties in the department at washington and i resolved to have an interview with him and to protest against such action the secretary had a wide reputation for extreme brusqueness in his intercourse even with his friends and seemed determined as an officer once expressed it to administer discipline totally regardless of previous acquaintance a frenchman once said that during the revolution while the guillotine was at work he never heard the name of robespierre that he did not take off his hat to see whether his head was still on his shoulders some of our officers were similarly inclined when they heard the name of stanton however i found the secretary quite civil and even patient and to all appearances disposed to allow my head to continue to occupy the place where i was in the habit of wearing it nevertheless the interview ended without his having yielded 
i certainly received a very cold bath at his hands and to this day i never see the impress of his unrelenting features upon a one-dollar treasury note without feeling a chill run down my back general grant returned to the capital on march twenty third i went to willard's to call upon him that evening and encountered him on the stairs leading up to the first floor he stopped and shook hands and greeted me with the words how do you do colonel i replied i had hoped to be colonel by this time owing to your interposition but what i feared has been realized much against my wishes the secretary of war seems to have made up his mind to keep me here i will see him to-morrow and urge the matter in person answered the general he then invited me to accompany him to his room and in the course of a conversation which followed said that he had had sheridan ordered east to take command of the cavalry of the army of the potomac sheridan arrived in washington on april fourth he had been worn down almost to a shadow by hard work and exposure in the field he weighed only a hundred and fifteen pounds and as his height was but five feet six inches he looked anything but formidable as a candidate for a cavalry leader he had met the president and the officials at the war department that day for the first time and it was his appearance on this occasion which gave rise to a remark made to general grant the next time he visited the department the officer you brought on from the west is rather a little fellow to handle your cavalry to which grant replied you will find him big enough for the purpose before we get through with him general grant had started for the field on the twenty sixth of march and established his headquarters in the little town of culpeper courthouse in virginia twelve miles north of the rapidan he visited washington about once a week to confer with the president and the secretary of war i continued my duties in the department at washington till my fate should be decided and on the twenty seventh of april i found that the request of the general-in-chief had prevailed and my appointment was officially announced as an aide-de-camp on his personal staff the afternoon of april twenty nine i arrived at culpeper and reported to him for duty a plain brick house near the railway station had been taken for headquarters and a number of tents had been pitched in the yard to furnish additional accommodations the next morning the general called for his horse to ride over to general meade's headquarters near brandy station about six miles distant he selected me as the officer who was to accompany him and we set out together on the trip followed by two orderlies he was mounted upon his large bay horse cincinnati which afterward became so well known throughout the army the animal was not called after the family of the ancient warrior who beat his sword into a ploughshare but after our modern city of that name he was a half-brother to asteroid and kentucky the famous racers and was consequently of excellent blood noticing the agility with which the general flung himself into the saddle i remarked i'm very glad to see that your injured leg no longer disables you no he replied it gives me scarcely any trouble now although sometimes it feels a little numb as we rode along he began to speak of his new command and said i have watched the progress of the army of the potomac ever since it was organized and have been greatly interested in reading the accounts of the splendid fighting it has done i always thought the territory covered by its operations would be the principal battleground of the war when i was in cairo in 1861 the height of my ambition was to command a brigade of cavalry in this army 
i suppose it was my fondness for horses that made me feel that i should be more at home in command of cavalry and i thought that the army of the potomac would present the best field of operations for a brigade commander in that arm of the service he then changed the subject to chattanooga and in speaking of that battle interjected into his descriptions brief criticisms upon the services and characteristics of several of the officers who had taken part in the engagement he continued by saying the difficulty is in finding commanding officers possessed of sufficient breadth of view and administrative ability to confine their attention to perfecting their organizations and giving a general supervision to their commands instead of wasting their time upon details for instance there is general g he is a very gallant officer but at a critical period of the battle of chattanooga he neglected to give the necessary directions to his troops and concentrated all his efforts upon aiming and firing some heavy guns a service which could have been better performed by any lieutenant of artillery i had to order him peremptorily to leave the battery and give his attention to his troops he then spoke of his experiences with mr lincoln and the very favorable impression the president had made upon him he said in the first interview i had with the president when no others were present and he could talk freely he told me that he did not pretend to know anything about the handling of troops and it was with the greatest reluctance that he ever interfered with the movements of army commanders but he had common sense enough to know that celerity was absolutely necessary that while armies were sitting down waiting for opportunities to churn up which might perhaps be more favorable from a strictly military point of view the government was spending millions of dollars every day that there was a limit to the sinews of war and a time might be reached when the spirits and resources of the people would become exhausted he had always contended that these considerations should be taken into account as well as purely military questions and that he adopted the plan of issuing his executive orders principally for the purpose of hurrying the movements of commanding generals but that he believed i knew the value of minutes and that he was not going to interfere with my operations he said further that he did not want to know my plans that it was perhaps better that he should not know them for everybody he met was trying to find out from him something about the contemplated movements and there was always a temptation to leak i have not communicated my plans to him or to the secretary of war the only suggestion the president made and it was merely a suggestion not a definite plan was entirely impractical and it was not again referred to in our conversation he told me in our first private interview a most amusing anecdote regarding a delegation of cross-roads wiseacres as he called them who came to see him one day to criticize my conduct in paroling pemberton's army after the surrender at vicksburg who insisted that the men would violate their paroles and in less than a month confront me anew in the field and have to be whipped all over again said mr lincoln i thought the best way to get rid of them was to tell them the story of sykes dog have you ever heard about sykes yellow dog said i to the spokesman of the delegation he said he hadn't well i must tell you about him said i sykes had a yellow dog he set great store by but there were a lot of small boys around the village and that's always a bad thing for dogs you know these boys didn't share sykes's views and they were not disposed to let the dog have a fair show even sykes had to admit that the dog was getting unpopular 
in fact it was soon seen that a prejudice was growing up against that dog that threatened to wreck all his future prospects in life the boys after meditating how they could get the best of him finally fixed up a cartridge with a long fuse put the cartridge in a piece of meat dropped the meat in the road in front of sykes's door and then perched themselves on a fence a good distance off holding the end of the fuse in their hands then they whistled for the dog when he came out he scented the bait and bolted the meat cartridge and all the boys touched off the fuse with a cigar and in about a second a report came from that dog that sounded like a clap of thunder sykes came bouncing out of the house and yelled what's up anything busted there was no reply except a snicker from the small boys roosting on the fence but as sykes looked up he saw the whole air filled with pieces of yellow dog he picked up the biggest piece he could find a portion of the back with a part of the tail still hanging to it and after turning it round and looking it all over he said well i guess he'll never be much account again as a dog and i guess pemberton's forces will never be much account again as an army the delegation began looking around for their hats before i had quite got to the end of the story and i was never bothered any more after that about superseding the commander of the army of the tennessee the general related this anecdote with more animation than he usually displayed and with the manifestation of a keen sense of the humorous and remarked afterward but no one who does not possess the president's unequalled powers of mimicry can pretend to convey an idea of the amusing manner in which he told the story this characteristic illustration employed by the president was used afterwards in a garbled form by writers in an attempt to apply it to other events i give the original version when we reached general meade's camp that officer who was sitting in his quarters came out and greeted the general-in-chief warmly shaking hands with him before he dismounted general meade was then forty-nine years of age of rather a spare figure and graceful in his movements he had a full beard which like his hair was brown slightly tinged with gray he wore a slouched felt hat with a conical crown and a turned-down brim which gave him a sort of tyrolese appearance the two commanders entered meade's quarters sat down lighted their cigars and held a long interview regarding the approaching campaign i now learned that two days before the time had been definitely named at which the opening campaign was to begin and that on the next wednesday may four the armies were to move meade in speaking of his troops always referred to him as my people during this visit i had an opportunity to meet a number of old acquaintances whom i had not seen since i served with the army of the potomac on general mcclellan's staff two years before after the interview had ended i returned with the general to headquarters riding at a brisk trot his conversation now turned upon the commander of the army of the potomac in the course of which he remarked i had never met general meade since the mexican war until i visited his headquarters when i came east last month in my first interview with him he talked in a manner which led me to form a very high opinion of him he referred to the changes which were taking place and said it had occurred to him that i might want to make a change in the commander of the army of the potomac and to put in his place sherman or some other officer who had served with me in the west and urged me not to hesitate on his account if i desired to make such an assignment he added that the success of the cause was much more important than any consideration for the feelings of an individual 
he spoke so patriotically and unselfishly that even if i had any intention of relieving him i should have been inclined to change my mind after the manly attitude he assumed in this frank interview this was the first long personal talk i had with the general-in-chief as our intercourse heretofore had been only of an official character and the exhibition of the remarkable power he possessed as a conversationalist was a revelation i began to learn that his reputed reticence did not extend to his private intercourse and that he had the ability to impart a peculiar charm to almost any topic that evening a large correspondence was conducted in relation to the final preparations for the coming movements a few days before an occurrence had happened which came very near depriving the armies of the services of general grant in the virginia campaign on his return to headquarters after his last visit to the president in washington when his special train reached warrenton junction he saw a large cloud of dust to the east of the road upon making inquiries of the station-master as to its cause he learned that colonel mosby who commanded a partisan confederate force called by his own people mosby's conglomerates and who had become famous for his cavalry raids had just passed driving a detachment of our cavalry before him if the train had been a few minutes earlier mosby like christopher columbus upon his voyage to this country would have discovered something which he was not looking for as the train carried no guard it would not have been possible to make any defence in such case the union commander would have reached richmond a year sooner than he finally arrived there but not at the head of an army general grant now held a command the magnitude of which has seldom been equalled in history his troops consisted of twenty-one army corps and the territory covered by the field of operations embraced eighteen military departments besides the region held by the army of the potomac which had never been organized into a department the total number of troops under his command present for duty equipped was five hundred and thirty three thousand in all purely military questions his will was at this time almost supreme and his authority was usually unquestioned he occupied the most conspicuous position in the nation not excepting that of the president himself and the eyes of all the loyal people in the land were turned to him appealingly as the one man upon whom their hopes were centred and in whom their chief faith reposed the responsibilities imposed were commensurate with the magnitude of the undertaking which had been confided to him while commanding all the armies of the nation he had wisely decided to establish his headquarters with the army of the potomac and give his immediate supervision to the operations of that force and the troops which were intended to cooperate with it in the state of virginia telegraphic communication was then open with nearly all the armies the staff consisted of fourteen officers only and was not larger than that of some division commanders the chief of staff was brigadier-general john a rawlins when the war broke out he was a practicing lawyer in galena illinois and had gained some prominence in politics as a democrat after the firing upon fort sumter a public meeting was held in galena and captain grant being an ex-army officer was called upon to preside rawlins attended the meeting and made a stirring and effective speech declaring it to be the duty of all good citizens to sink their political predilections and urging them to pledge themselves to the support of the union and the enforcement of the laws 
general grant was much impressed with the vigor and logic of the address and when he was afterwards assigned to the command of a brigade he appointed rawlins on his staff he was at first aide-de-camp afterward assistant adjutant-general and finally chief of staff the general had a high regard for him officially and was warmly attached to him personally rawlins in his youth had worked on a farm and assisted his father in burning charcoal obtaining what education he could acquire at odd times in the district school and at a neighboring seminary he was frank honest and resolute and loyally devoted to his chief he always had the courage of his convictions and was capable of stating them with great force he was plain and simple in manner of a genial disposition and popular with all the other members of the staff he had never served in a military organization nor made a study of the art of war but he possessed natural executive ability of a high order and developed qualities which made him exceedingly useful to his chief and to the service the rest of the staff consisted of the following officers lieutenant colonel c b comstock aide-de-camp an officer of the united states corps of engineers with a well-deserved reputation for scientific attainments who had shown great efficiency while serving with general grant in the vicksburg campaign lieutenant colonel o e babcock aide-de-camp an accomplished officer of engineers who had gained an excellent reputation in several campaigns in which he had been conspicuous for his good judgment and great personal courage lieutenant colonel f t dent aide-de-camp a classmate of general grant and brother of mrs grant he had served with credit in the mexican war and in scott's advance upon the city of mexico had been severely wounded and was twice promoted for gallant and meritorious conduct in battle the four officers just named were of the regular army and were graduates of the west point military academy lieutenant colonel adam badeau military secretary who had first gone to the field as a newspaper correspondent and was afterward made an aide-de-camp to general t w sherman he was badly wounded in the foot at fort hudson and when convalescent was assigned to the staff of general grant he had had a good training in literature and was an accomplished writer and scholar lieutenant colonel william r raleigh military secretary was also from galena he entered an illinois regiment as a lieutenant and after the battle of donelson was made a captain and aide-de-camp to general grant his gallant conduct at shiloh where he greatly distinguished himself commended him still more highly to his commander he resigned august thirty eighteen sixty four and was succeeded by captain parker lieutenant colonel t s bowers assistant adjutant-general was a young editor of a country newspaper in illinois when hostilities began he raised a company of volunteers for the forty eighth illinois infantry but declined the captaincy and fought in the ranks he was detailed as a clerical assistant at general grant's headquarters in the donelson campaign and was soon made a lieutenant and afterward a captain and aide-de-camp his services in all the subsequent campaigns were highly appreciated by his chief lieutenant colonel w l duff had been for a time acting chief of artillery under general grant in the west and was now assigned to duty as assistant inspector general captain eli s parker assistant adjutant-general who was a full-blooded indian a grand-nephew of the famous red jacket and reigning chief of the tribes known as the six nations his indian name was donahogawa 
colonel parker had received a good education and was a civil engineer employed upon the united states government building in galena at the breaking out of the war he commended himself to general grant by his conduct in the vicksburg campaign and was there placed on his staff and served in the adjutant general's department captain george k leet assistant adjutant general who had come east with general grant from the army of the tennessee and who was assigned to duty at the headquarters of the army in washington and remained there during the campaign captain h w janes assistant quartermaster captain peter t hudson a volunteer officer from the state of iowa had served with the general in the west and was retained as an aide-de-camp lieutenant william mckee dunn jr a beardless boy of nineteen was assigned as an acting aide-de-camp to general rawlins but performed general staff duty at headquarters and under many trying circumstances proved himself as cool and gallant as the most experienced veteran all the members of the staff had had abundant experience in the field and were young active and ready for any kind of hard work End of chapter 2